0: Obscure Pastor Podcast. I'm Drew Carpenter, your host on the podcast for all kinds of ministers and other followers of Jesus who work in relative obscurity. My guest today is Megan Hatcher. She's a pastor of community engagement at Servant Church in Austin, Texas. She has a great love of stories and believes wholeheartedly in the empowering ability of storytelling. She has a Bachelor of Journalism at the University of Missouri, which I have to mention as that's where my parents met, and I would not be here if that hadn't happened. Also, she, has, she holds a Master's of Science, which is pretty unique for a minister, and a Master's of Divinity as well. Megan, thanks for being on today. Can you briefly tell me about your current ministry situation? Like what kinds of work do you do? Who do you work with?
1: Sure. Thank you, Andrew, so much for having me on. Um, it's a privilege. I'm the pastor of community engagement at Servant Church, and that is a church in the rapidly gentrifying area of East Austin. Um, that's we're about to celebrate our tenth year um, as uh, being in, in existence, and so the church is kind of in what we're calling our third season. We have figured out a little bit about what it means to be church, um, to be a diverse community, and We find ourselves um, predominantly attracting folks who are seeking kind of a refuge, Um, lots of people who have been hurt by the church or who are deconstructing and reconstructing their faith. Um, So it's a really unique community. Um, And my role there specifically is to help us think about, um, this is something we say every Sunday, think about how we are being the church outside the building all week long. So, I get to do all kinds of different stuff um, from typical pastor kind of duties like preaching and worship leadership and um, life group discussion guide creation and curriculum and that kind of thing, but then also helping us think about how we can get involved with local advocacy, how we can be working for racial reconciliation in the city. Um, most folks don't actually realize that Austin's one of the most segregated cities in the country. So there's a lot of work for us to be doing in that realm as a predominantly white congregation. Um, And then thinking about how we are loving our neighbors in the immediate neighborhood. Um, So just meeting people where they are. We have a lot of folks who come in um, off the streets on Sundays and join us for coffee and breakfast and uh, worship from time to time. So my role is very multifaceted. I'm kind of a utility player on the staff team at Servant Church. And it's a, it's a real delight to be able to do that.
0: That's great. You agreed to come on the Obscure Pastor podcast. Why do you consider yourself to be obscure?
1: So that is a really interesting question. I actually find the word obscure really interesting because it seems to have kind of a negative connotation. And I really don't think that that's merited. I think that being obscure um, in many ways is kind of an act of faith. Um, kind of a spiritual discipline. And so I guess the the more formal answer to that um, would be in February 2019, I made the decision to drop out of the ordination process in the United Methodist Church. And for listeners who are not acquainted with all of the turmoil going on in the UMC, um, I made that decision because I didn't feel that I could continue in a process that uh, welcomed me as an ordained member, um, as a cisgender heterosexual woman, but barred my LGBTQ friends and siblings from participating. Um, so that really was kind of the formal decision where I, I said, you know what, I'm not, gonna be, I'm not gonna kneel before a bishop in front of thousands of folks and have um, Reverend officially put before my name. Um, So really, my ministry kind of happens behind the curtain and kind of under the radar. Um, So I'm functioning as a pastor, but I'm not actually ordained. Um, So that was really probably the most willing choice of obscurity that I made in February 2019. Um, And I don't regret that whatsoever. I think that that's actually freed me up to be able to live into what I feel God is calling me to do um, more authentically, I think if I had chosen to pursue those credentials, even when my soul didn't feel at peace about it, I think that that would have been actually inauthentic uh, for myself. So that's kind of the official choice of obscurity. Um, but then you know, there's just there's a lot of labor that you do as a that doesn't fit the job description. It certainly wasn't talked about in seminary. Um, I actually once saw on the job posting board at the seminary where I went a youth pastor slash janitorial position.
0: Oh, yeah. I've, had, I've seen those. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, and I thought, I thought well, at least they're setting up the expectations accurately from the get-go. Because there's a lot of times where the pastor is the one sweeping up or cleaning up the coffee carafes at the end of the, the Sunday service. Um, you know, and those things are, they're not glamorous, but they're part of what it means to be the church uh, and to be responsible and get to be a steward um, so yeah, so it's an obscure path that I've chosen.
0: Right. you saying that about the janitorial duties. I, I think of all of the men and women that I've served with over the years and the ones that I appreciated the most were the ones that were willing to help, help. set up the room and tear down the room. And, you know, they, that person might've been speaking that day, mm-hmm. but the ones that were willing to get their hands dirty, so to speak, and yeah. be a part of that. That's the people that I admire the most, and especially in those situations.
1: Yes, me too.
0: So you you were you know you went to Missouri and you were in D.C. for a little while, and was that were you in D.C. because you were attending seminary or was that for your tell me Tell me about that. And I think you mentioned something about um, having planted a church out there, and I'd like to hear a little bit about that. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so we, um, my husband and I had discerned that I was feeling called to become a pastor and to pursue seminary when we were in the midst of a evangelical um, church in Missouri. And that is another long story. Um, but around 2015, we left that church and in 2016 moved to D.C. for me to attend seminary. Um, and then while we were there, I really kind of, Uh, serendipitously met a woman in 2017, in the late fall of 2017, who had just moved from Atlanta with her family, and she was given the task of trying to plant a new church in Arlington, Virginia, which is, of course, just over, over the D.C. border, and Arlington has the greatest number of people in the age range between 18 and 35 of anywhere else in the country. And so there was this vision coming from the denomination, the United Methodist Church, that there was a great need to bring in young people into the church and we needed to plant a new church and it needed to be different than some of the established older, um, and by older I mean literally older demographically, but then also just older buildings uh, in order to attract young people into the church. So this pastor and I, um, I ended up working under her. Um, and she, of course, she was the pastor. She did all of the heavy lifting. Um, I was just in the support role um, part time. so I do not at all take any credit for, for any of her efforts. Um, she was doing an amazing job. but we she toiled for about um, a year or so trying to do some asset mapping and figure out what kind of faith community does Arlington actually need? what do they what do folks want? What would draw people in? Um, And then I joined up with her to help try to, you know, figure out the logistics and help facilitate that. Um, And we did that for about a year. So we officially started meeting for monthly worship and we made that happen for about a year. Um, And then the the model just wasn't working and we were rapidly running out of money and the denomination wasn't willing to give us any more. And 18 to 35-year-olds living in Washington, D.C., don't have a lot of disposable income, so the (laughs) offering baskets were not plentiful. Um, And honestly, if you go around D.C. and any major city, most people within the ages of 18 and 35 are having brunch with friends. They're not at church. Um, And we all, you know, that's kind of old news. Pew Research comes out every few years with a report about the demise of Christianity, but but I think it's kind of anecdotally known as well. Just as attendance is dropping in most churches in the U.S., um, so I, re- I think I referred to that as a spectacular failure um, in my email to you. But I mean, it was a huge learning opportunity. It was a really great learning opportunity, and it confirmed for me the ways in which our institutions lag so far beyond behind what's actually happening. Um, and so was, it was a deeply transformative experience for me. It was deeply frustrating. Um, but it was also a great learning time.
0: Cool. Thanks for sharing that with me and with anybody who ends up listening to this. Um, I think it's, it's great to kind of go, okay, this didn't work out, but that's not going to keep me, that's not going to hold me back. And you know, you're, you're young, relatively speaking. I think I, mm-hmm. I get, as I get older and older, people get younger and younger, but, um, why is it, how do you, why do you stick with it? You know, a lot of people your age, like you said, they're, they're at brunch or CrossFit or yoga. Mm-hmm. Or, Absolutely. Those are their, those are their faith communities. That's their, that's their, their, their place to, to be and be connected. Why do you still feel like mm-hmm. church? a relationship with Christ and being Mm -hmm. a part of a faith community is important.
1: So I feel like there's my Megan answer and then there's a pastor answer to that.
0: Well, I want to hear the Megan answer.
1: (laughs) So I'll start with the Megan answer. The Megan answer is that I personally don't think that there's any possibility that I would be following Christ now or in the past or in the future if I didn't have an actual church that I was able to journey alongside. I mean, I think that there's, there's a lot of evidence that the way that people are building church together is changing, it's already changed. Um, the US is on the verge of being considered post-Christian. You know, Of course, the UK is already under that, um, that name. A lot of evidence that things are changing but I don't think that the actual soul-deep needs of human beings are ever going to change. I think that we need to be reminded that we're not alone. I think that we need to be reminded that the buck doesn't stop with us. Um, I, to use Christian language, I need to be reminded that I'm not God, that God is God. Um, I need people to help gently call me out um, when I'm not living the way that I actually was created to live. Um, And the church, I just think, I mean, as many other places as I've been, other examples of community that I've seen, I still think that the church is the best chance that we have of actually following Christ, not just on Sundays or whatever day your community happens to worship, but also every single day. Um, And then that kind of gets into a little bit of the pastor answer. I view my role as pastor as primarily being invitational, that I'm trying to invite people to critically think about and engage with their faith in their daily life. And and that doesn't happen overnight. I don't think that that actually happens in one hour-long worship service or one amazing weekend-long Christian conference with some great speaker or something. I think it happens in the daily toiling and the three steps forward four steps back, one step forward, two steps back, kind of Christian life. Um, but I just, you know, it takes a lot of faith to not believe in anything beyond the self. Mm. Um, and I guess I don't have that much faith. <laughs> back,
0: back to the, the the church in Arlington. It was two, two years roughly from the time it was launched until yes. it, the demise. I- right? I think
1: that was about right. Yep. Like, and you had, like had backing
0: from year. a, from the, one of the largest denominations in the country, but they, mm-hmm. so they gave it two years and the things you just said a minute ago about mm-hmm. how it's a, it's a, it takes time and effort and energy and one step forward, two step back, mm-hmm. you know, the, the short sightedness of, mm, man, well, we've done this for two years. I think we're done. it's just that that's where I'm like oh Mm -hmm. yeah I I get that and again I think part of what we're having to figure out especially in our smaller congregations is what does church look like in 2020 and beyond because it may not be that the the models that we have for especially for the smaller congregations may not work that much longer
1: yeah well I I think, that, I think that the models of churches are changing and I think that there's a lot of scholarship and conversation going into, okay, there's fewer and fewer people sitting in pews or chairs or whatever for a worship service on Sunday and so we're going to have to change how we do this. But I think what's still lagging behind is a change in the conception of professionalized ministry in the sense that... You know, the average seminary graduate graduates with $100,000 of of debt. And then you go into a position where your congregation is increasingly shrinking over time. And so, you know, income in that church setting is shrinking. So it's, you know, that's a mismatch, right? Like there's this, there's a requirement for a professional minister who's doing ministry full time in your church. But your church is shrinking. The offering is shrinking. And there's going to have to be a real reckoning with what that, what that means and what the implications of that are, I think, in the next 5, 10, 15 years.
0: Absolutely. I want to talk a little bit about the isolation or loneliness that we can feel as pastors and ministers, um, but that also I want to think about the implications that have for, um, normal people, (laughs) pastors aren't really normal. We're just kind of weird. So talk to me about that a little bit. You've done some research and study and speaking on this topic a little bit. And I'd, I'd love to hear what you have to say.
1: Sure. So I actually preached on loneliness just a couple of weeks ago, and in preparing for that sermon, was looking at a lot of the more recent research into loneliness. Um, And a 2018 study of 20,000 American adults, um, just conducted by Cigna, so the health insurance company, found that 46% of the people surveyed said that they sometimes or always feel alone. And then I found another study from 2015 from researchers at UCLA that talked about social isolation actually triggering cellular changes in our bodies. And then there was a bunch of other things that I came across that really make the case for the fact that loneliness is a public health crisis. And that's, you know, it's not coincidental that a major health insurance company found it within their benefit to do this study called the, um, U.S. Loneliness Index. So it's, it's being documented within the public health landscape. And I think that the spiritual landscape of the American Christian Church is noticing as well. And I think that's why there's this huge impetus for we've gotta get young people back in church and there's this you know, huge outcry for trying to reach young people. But actually I think that something that's being missed from the conversation is that it's not just young people who are lonely. It's actually all across the board, every generation. So it's not just young people, and it's not just senior citizens who perhaps live alone or live in some kind of um, nursing facility. There's actually a huge kind of middle ground, demographically, that's experiencing loneliness too. And so if you put that you know, sketch up against the decline of the formal Christian church, then you see that there's this kind of weird inverse relationship that People are feeling increasingly alone, but they're also not finding the church to have any kind of really meaningful answer to their loneliness. And that, I think, is really perhaps one of the greatest failures of the church right now. I have, in my life, there's really not, there's probably a handful of people in my life right now who go to church every single week. And I don't even, and that's not just young people, that's also, all of the baby boomers that I know are not in church every week. And so it's this really interesting thing that I'm observing. And it makes me feel like there's got to be some more innovative, collaborative, creative ways to involve people, to help people feel like the church has something to say or has something to offer them that they really can't get elsewhere. Uh, and that kind of gets back to your earlier question about why i still believe in the church. And i think it's that the church is not just a place to go, certainly not just a building. If it's actually being the church, i think that we are being incarnational and in we're showing one another up close and personal the love of christ. And i i don't think that that's being offered in very many other places. Now it's not to say that you know, there's a lot of research showing that CrossFit and these other examples, Soul Cycle, these other examples of innovative, um, community building are providing that for people, but it's not necessarily using at all the same language. Um,
0: I read it's, a research. It's not, it's not transcendent necessarily either, is it?
1: Well, it's, it's certainly not setting out to be. So I read a study that was just released, um think in 2015, and it actually included some anecdotes from an interview with the founders of SoulCycle, and the founders of Soul Cycle really kind of pushed back on the idea that they are offering any kind of spiritual experience for people. That's not um, a language that they either felt was relevant to what they're offering or something that they actually wanted to be pursuing for people. Uh, so it's, it's not, I don't think it's replacing what the church's role can be. Hmm. Um, yeah.
0: Well, tell me this. What, what do you do when you personally feel lonely or isolated or just like nobody gets me kind of stuff, <laughs> whatever, whatever that might be. What, what do you do personally to alleviate that?
1: Yeah. So I actually, it's funny that you asked me that right now because I um, just moved back to Austin in June and I've moved, I have done the whole uproot my life, move across the country where I didn't know anyone three times. I did that when I went at 17 to, uh, to college in Missouri. I did that when I moved to DC. And then moving back here to Austin, really didn't know anybody except for my folks that are in town. And for the first time in my life, I have felt a kind of loneliness that is deeper than any I've ever experienced. And I think part of that has to do with just the fact that um, historically the place where I have found the deepest friendships has been either work or my church. And now that church is officially my work and work is my church, that's presented some challenges just in terms of of You know, not really being able to be I can't develop intimate friendships with the folks who are in my church um, So that's presented a problem. So for about the first seven months that I was here, I tried um, I developed a meetup account and tried to do yoga in the park with people or go get beer with folks I joined a writing group um, You know just using meetup as an app that tries to connect strangers to do mutually fun things together Um And that was fine. I've met a few people but haven't, you know, that hasn't really led to any super lasting deep friendships. Over the last few months have finally ended up in spaces with a few different women in town who just kind of serendipitously met them, grabbed coffee or grabbed lunch. And over the course of our conversation, each of us lamented the fact that we feel lonely or isolated or we don't feel like we have a spiritually nourishing community that is our own. Um, So actually, just last week, we launched our own small group together. Um, So we're going to meet every other week in each other's homes, and we're going to study scripture and pray and, you know, do kind of the typical small group model. Um, But none of us has to be pastor or facilitator or leader in that space. Um, So I'm really looking forward to that, but it was really a, um, that was kind of the byproduct of trying for a long time to fix the loneliness thing with other, um, other remedies and then realizing like, yep, I'm not, I'm not able to find what I need, so I'm just going to create it with some other like-minded folks. Um, so we'll see how that goes, but I have lots of hope for it.
0: That's great. And it's important that you kind of recognize that and you're willing to take some steps and get out there and, and try, try to do something different since Mm -hmm. what you're doing didn't seem to be working just right
1: yeah
0: yeah well I I totally appreciate you coming on the podcast today I want to kind of wind us down on a little bit lighter note because we tend to get a little bit heavy we start talking about our lives and perceive failures or whatever it is that we talk about and so I would love to know who your favorite musical artist is
1: oh gosh
0: and it could be like right now or it could be when you were in high school or whatever
1: Hmm. that's always i don't know why but i have a really hard time ever naming my favorite of anything um i don't know why that is i'm an enneagram eight with possibly maybe it's a seven wing i don't know (laughs) um i i would have to answer so my favorite artist right now in this moment is the high women um, which is the new like, super group with Brandi Carlisle and Marin Morris and um, a couple other very empowering women who are just writing a lot of music that has a lot to say. Um, so they have a song right now called Crowded Table, which I am kind of obsessed with.
0: All right. I'd love to hear something about you, not very many people know.
1: Oh, gosh. Um. I, so I just outed myself as an Enneagram 8, I have sometimes a very short temper, but it's only when I'm alone. Yep, so I can be very impatient, but it's only when I'm alone, and I don't ever really show it to anyone. I don't even think that my husband, Corey, has seen it all that often, but it can be about very dumb things, like if my computer is not working the way that I want it to. I can become very impatient with that. But I don't think that people normally know that because I present as being kind of cool and calm, which is not always the case.
0: (laughs) I know somebody in your life. That's a little bit like that. (laughs) Do you? I, I do. I'm
1: learning that I'm learning that there's, a deeper connection than we perhaps had realized. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's not an inside joke. I'm talking about Megan's dad, Bruce, who I am good friends with Megan. How can people find you if you want to be found? If you don't want to be found, that's cool. We'll just do whatever.
1: <laughs> um. Well, so of course, if they ever wanted to visit servant church, Austin, um, we are over in East Austin in the Cherrywood area and visitors are always welcome. And you could find us online at servantchurchaustin.org. And then I'm also, um, a side ministry that I do is some storytelling work. Um, so that's something that is very much I've done in the past in D.C., and then I've done in Austin that's in development right now, working on a website. Uh, so someday soon there will be a web presence for that. But the name of that storytelling ministry is the Clay Jar Project.
0: Okay. Anything else? Anything you want to add?
1: You know, I guess as I, last thing I'll say is, as I was thinking about obscure and being obscure and toiling in obscurity, I was thinking, you know, I think that that actually might be closer to the way of Jesus than being up on a huge stage with thousands and thousands of people listening to you preach or writing millions of books, you know, or something like that, I mean, I just preached a sermon last Sunday on the earliest apostles who of course were being persecuted for preaching a message that was considered too radical for the Jewish establishment and a word that came to me as I was preaching that was that they in many ways were the religious riffraff. And and I think obscure pastors are kind of part of the religious riffraff. Um, and I think that that's a real privilege because I think Jesus was a little bit of riffraff too, you know, that oft quoted can anything good from come from Nazareth scripture. So I don't think that being obscure is a bad thing.
0: Well, absolutely. That's why we're uh, talking about it and bringing it into the light. (laughs) Well, Megan, thank you so much for being on today. I look forward to seeing you next time. And I'm in Texas. If that happens, that'd be great, but we'll see. All right. Thanks again and have a great rest of your week. Thanks. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to the Obscure Pastor Podcast. If you like the podcast, share it with a friend. Subscribe today and sign up at obscurepastor.com for my brief weekly e-newsletter. It's a dose of encouragement and inspiration. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Drew Carpenter. So let's be friends.